Hello, I'm Colin Miller, CEO at the Bracken Group, and this is Fractals, Life Science Conversations. Bracken is the professional services firm for life sciences and digital health organizations. Our intelligence ecosystem fulfills consulting, regulatory, marketing, and analytics needs with an integrated and strategic approach. For today's conversation, I'm so pleased to be joined by Martin Collier, a senior partner here at Bracken and an expert in such crucial areas as due diligence strategy and patient engagement and recruitment. Martin's commitment to patient-centric solutions is evident in his championing of initiatives to launch patient recruitment platforms and to engineer sightless clinical trial solutions. In fact, Martin has dedicated a significant portion of his career to advancing patient engagement, leveraging his expertise in strategic planning, due diligence, execution, and process optimization to develop successful engagement and recruitment strategies in notable senior executive roles at IQVIA and in collaboration with tech giants such as Apple and Samsung. Martin, welcome to the program. Thank you for joining me today. Uh, good morning, Colin. How are you? Doing well, thank you. And uh, Happy New Year. It's 2024. Pleasure oh, yeah, to you. have you here. So, Thanks. So when it comes to patient engagement initiative, what do you look for as an early predictor of success? Perhaps even before we start to see the results, you know, what signs have you come to notice as indicators of likely success? As you're aware, patient engagement is a rather broad topic. If you think about the different stakeholders in the industry that we work in, whether that's life sciences or uh, healthcare organizations or even insurance companies, you can think about it as um, separately clinical or commercial. So let me think first about patient engagement in the clinical perspective. And measuring patient engagement in clinical trials involves evaluating uh, various aspects um, that contribute to better patient participation, experience, uh, and trial outcomes. Some of the key metrics might be things like enrollment rates, retention rates, adherence to protocol. You know, so if you take what patients are doing in the clinical trial, how are they adhering to what the protocol says? Um, we might use surveys to survey patients from time to time to find out their feedback from how the clinical trial is going from their perspective. Might take time to look at important milestones as we're going through a clinical trial, such as first patient in, last patient out, you know, to ensure that we're, we're meeting with the expected input output of the clinical trial. We might also look at analyzing why patients might drop out. Now, if you think about patient engagement, we're looking at identifying people who fit with the inclusion exclusion criteria of a clinical trial protocol, identifying them. Uh, engaging with them and providing them with a white glove treatment, if you like, as they go through that process. So the whole process isn't just a fire and forget, forgive the military term, it is purely and simply how do we maintain a relationship through constant communication, reach out feedback with the patient throughout the clinical trial. And by assessing some of these metrics, and it helps us gain a, a comprehensive understanding of how effective patient engagement might be working. On the other hand, measuring the success of patient engagement in the commercial role involves us assessing 
how initiatives are impacting patient outcomes, market penetration. Some of the key metrics I might look at there just to measure success might be medication adherence rates. How are patients, once they've started taking their medication, how are they adhering to taking that medication in relation to the protocol that the, uh, the physician has set for them? What about patient education and awareness? Um, how do we evaluate the effectiveness of either of those in a, a patient understanding of the effectiveness or the value of the medication they're taking? Again, we might perform patient feedback and satisfaction metrics, collecting those from the patient directly to understand how they feel that this uh, program's going. From a pharmaceutical perspective, we might help them look at market share, sales metrics, brand loyalty, reputation, um, health outcomes and quality of life measurements. All of those are critical when we're thinking about how are we engaging patients and what are their expectations and how are they being met? Thank you for that and uh, quite a remarkable uh, breadth. I'd love to pick up on a couple of the items that you mentioned and drill into them a little bit more. One is uh, man, how do we evaluate uh, patient compliance with taking medication? Any insights or thoughts on, on how that's now conducted? Well, th things have changed quite considerably, Colin, and I do recall what you're saying. Um, in, in, and it's not just patient adherence is important, it's pers patient persistence as well. So um, you've got two is adherence to the maintenance, but continuing to do it persistently is, is also important because, of course, when taking medication, it's, it's, it's critical that we keep patients uh, taking the medication for as long as is necessary to obey any uh, future healthcare issues. In terms of adherence, it's still much of a challenge. And if you've ever taken any medication yourself or for those listening, it's a challenge for all of us. Sometimes we forget, sometimes we skip, sometimes we're, we're a day out. And there isn't much for us to do. What has been developed, there are reminders, text reminders, email alerts, telephone reminders, if you like. There's also app reminders. So a lot of organizations have developed all of these really great tools. But at the end of the day, it comes down to the human intervention. Am, am I going to pay attention to all of this noise that's happening to me uh, on a regular basis? Even wearable devices, they come with um, the ability to set reminders as well. If you've had one of these or worked with one of these, sometimes they just become an annoyance. So what organizations have done to mitigate these challenges is incredible. Whether they work or not is pretty much a flip of the coin. The other uh, point you made was conducting a survey on how the patients are feeling during the course of a study. And that was a novel approach. And I wonder if you could perhaps drill in that a little bit more, because I presume you have to set that up a priori and it has to have ethical approval. So how do you set that up and yet make it something that you're gonna get sensible feedback on? And that's exactly it, Colin. It's like anything. If you're measuring anything through a clinical trial, it has to go through the IRB process and it's all regulatory contained. It has to be administered by those typically at the clinical site. So the clinical site would either send out the uh, survey at the, in the during or beyond. There's other ways of collecting that. Again, still has to go through the IRB process. You could do it through things like web portals, again, through apps, etc. So we could collect that, but the questions, the input, the information is still regulatory and, and compliance uh, checked through the IRB. These can be done electronically now, um, which is much more efficient. However, as with most things, we are bombarded with information collection, with telecalls, with emails from people we don't know. So 
the likelihood of getting information back from people isn't bad, uh, but it can be quite slim. Staying with the same question, but totally changing uh, focus. Um, I know you've been involved in quite a lot of due diligence work. And when you're starting off on a due diligence project, how, how does that feel in the early stages? And how do you uh, predetermine success in those? Everything is determined by the quality, the accuracy, the timeliness of the information that you're going to be looking at in the due diligence. At the end of the day, if, if we're going to be, if we're being bought in to take a look at a target, we can only assess the information that's in front of us. And it's the completeness of that. It's the accuracy of that. The whole purpose of due diligence is to understand and identify not just the opportunities, but the risks. So as we're looking at an organization or an asset, what we have to understand is not just what we know has happened today, but also what could happen tomorrow. So some of that could be lots of evaluating. What does it look like? What is pending? Are there situations like liabilities or contingencies yet to happen, which haven't happened yet, for which the purchaser of the asset or the, the target organization needs to know about and plan for? I need to know what has happened and I need to have a clear picture of that, but I also need to know what will happen so I can have a clear picture of that and measure that. Again, the output of a, a, a successful due diligence process goes a long way in supporting the negotiation of the final deal, but it also aids in the possible successful integration of that asset, whether it's a target company or um, medication, into the new organization. And as with any project, there's lots of constraints. A big challenge to success is dependent, as I've said already, that, that completeness of the information available, the time and resources given to assess that information and the budget set for the team going in to do that due diligence as well. So moving on, you know, move, without breaching confidentiality, can you share an interesting or unexpected finding you've experienced or witnessed as part of a client project, whether it's on the financial side or the clinical trial side? Many times when I'm working with clients, they have a preconceived understanding or preconceived knowledge of what it is they think they need. And it's challenging for either the client or the services organization purely and simply because they have a biased view of their challenges, their opportunities, their risks, everything when it comes to the project that they've asked us to work on. If you think about patient recruitment for clinical trials, for instance, I've worked with many different pharma companies, many different CROs in supporting their projects, and they have a predetermined understanding of what they believe a patient looks like, where that patient is, how that patient responds and all of those things. And as we've mentioned earlier on this fractals discussion, people are individuals and they're, the way that they approach their healthcare journey is unique to them and the challenges, the people, the place they live, it's all unique to them. So a one size fits all sometimes is all we can do. And that's the expectation of a pharma company is we need to build a solution to help in patient recruitment retention. But oftentimes, it's the diversity of people that we're working with that makes that a challenge. You know, do people like to receive emails or texts or, or things on their phone? Do they like to log into portals? Um, and we think about age, gender, ethnicity, social um, economic status, geographic location. All of those play an extremely large role in how people approach their healthcare. And therefore, explaining this 
to pharma companies or even service organizations is critical, but we have limited resources and therefore we have to work with that. But I will share with you, Colin, that is a standard. It's typically when I'm talking to organizations, particularly about patient engagement, this has happened broadly across most of the clients, they have a preconceived notion of what it is they want, how they want it, and when they want it. And it's our role to empathize with that and provide what they're looking for, but also provide the risks and opportunities with taking that route. So moving along a little further, here at Bracken, we often think about an integrated approach. Uh, we talk about encompassing uh, our consulting, regulatory, marketing, analytics, and, and within each of those, we have uh, a, a wide variety of facets that we bring to bear. I also appreciate from your personal background, you've had a tremendous journey throughout your career. Um, we mentioned some of it in the beginning, but you served in the military, you've got a full accounting degree, you've now become an expert in uh, patient engagement, and you're, because you and I have chatted, I now know that you're also doing um, studying in AI and development. So how do you look at an integrated approach when you're working with clients and, and how do you come into that process as you start thinking about a new project? The problem that the customer, our client has set for us, we have to understand what is that problem? What is the client looking for? And what do we need to bring to bear to ensure that we provide that client with everything they need to ensure that they get the answer, the, the way forward that they're looking for? So that means lots of questions, lots of answering, understanding the environment, understanding the, the, the market landscape, understanding the challenges. It, it's taking a look at the challenges in deep. The reason you need an integrated approach to that is because if you look at the stakeholder analysis of an organization that we're working with, all of those come to bear. I haven't not once been in a conversation where regulatory and compliance is not a huge part of that discussion. And if you think about marketing and sales, that is exactly how we, we want to solve this problem to people. How, how are they going to know about how we're solving this problem? What are they going to do? And so quite often, Colin, bringing the power of the consulting team, the ability to ask questions, understand the, the challenges, understand the landscape, and go into it in depth into either radiological or even technological um, it, that having that consulting base is critical to ask those questions. Having the right legal, regulatory, compliance backing from our team, which is second to none, having that in our back pocket helps us to stay in our swim lanes and to stop us from tripping over. And then marketing analysis. Oh my, we didn't even talk about analysis. Everything I do is analysis, research, analysis, understanding whether it's the, the patient, the, the HCP, the pharma company, the clinical research organization, what clinical trials are being run right now. Having all of that information in your back pocket enables us to be successful. It does, and thank you. So in addition to your industry executive roles, um, a fascinating part of your own background has been your work in collaboration with Apple Watch. Um, I believe working to empower healthcare providers to deliver personalized clinical treatment by using real-time data, patient-generated healthcare data, in addition to the uh, typical EHR lab and claims data. 
Does that experience impact your thinking on how patient engagement strategy and resources are utilized? And how does that impact where you think the future might be? Just in the last two years, look at the technological advances that have occurred in our industry. As I started thinking about it, if you think about patient engagement, patient recruitment, patient retention, the whole way that we approach things, as I've shared with you, we're all unique. And it used to be, hey, I've got an idea. This is the best size fits all. So we're going to use that best size fits all because we're going to get the majority of the of the people that we need. And then people started getting bombarded with lots of information and in lots of different places. And it became noisy and, and difficult. And we thought maybe 15 years ago that social media, Facebook and things like that was going to change the way we found people. It seemed like we were targeting people. Um, and, 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 you know, shooting information and saying, you're going to fit this clinical trial, join now. And it, it became very uncomfortable. But, but that's what happened during the, during the early days of social media. If we think about patient engagement today and, and what happens, there's so much information that's being brought to bear. Now, again, electronic health records. Um, I've been working with electronic health records for 15 years now true electronic digital health, electronic health records. Interoperability was the biggest challenge to that as they came on, and it still is the biggest challenge. When you look at an electronic health record, it's missing so much information. It's got lots of very good clinical grade information, notes from doctors, nurses, etc., on that clinical side of thing. But what it has been missing is what we call the patient generated health data. That information that we as individuals are all made up of whether it's how we approach our social media, where we go, how often we do that. Are we dieting? Are we exercising? Are we sleeping? Are we drinking water? All of that information plays an important and critical role in how we as individuals approach our healthcare. Working with um, some of those major wearable organizations we've mentioned, what, what, what occurred to me was the best way for us to start tracking and developing solutions is using not only all of that information, but what you'll find is there's lots of biases, holes and gaps in that data. But in addition to that, if we think about if we could understand more about how people approach their life, we could understand more. So um, and, and, and I, I share this story all the time, Colin, I think you've heard me say it. I go to my doctor every six months and during that checkup, my doctor gives me a blood pressure uh, test. 10 minutes of time with my doctor. He's an amazing guy. We've grown up together. He knows everything about me during our 10 minutes of calls that we have twice a year. And you know what? Every time Colin and I have my blood pressure measured, I've got high blood pressure. And every time I go and see my doctor, he says to me, I'm going to put you on blood pressure medicine. And I'll say, I don't think so. And I, like other people, I do a lot of healthcare uh, checking at home. And what I do is I, I do my blood pressure twice a day, once in the morning, once at night. I've got my data. I share that data with my physician. My physician then has a better view of how I'm actually living my life. So using, working with some of these wearable organizations, I was able to look at developing some more patient-grade solutions that enables us to understand, not track, not do anything of those things, understand how people are facing their lives so it gives them a more three-dimensional view of their healthcare. and as i've shared with you before i believe that 
artificial intelligence is going to augment what physicians do instead of having that 10 minute check with a physician where he's got his back to typing all the time we're literally going to get 10 to 15 minutes of time with our physician and he is going to learn more about us he's going to get more data from us from our, our um, wearables he's going to get more data from us from our, our phones and the systems that we're, we're connected to fascinating insights the way technology is going to be used as and as you say to be able to uh, avoid the white coat hypertension syndrome, um, which you very eloquently described in the first part, is going to be a key part to that. And uh, the ability for us to do it re you know, remotely uh, with all the data. But actually, as a sort of uh, another touch to that, my very first job was working for an orthopedic surgeon. One of his points was that while he wanted to see the patient, he felt there was a physician's touch. And he would make every effort to ensure that he touched the patient at least once on the way in and once on the way out to add the empathy, to add the medical touch, as he would call it. And I don't know if you have any thoughts or insights into that, because if it's all remote, we lose that aspect. And maybe we can afford to lose that aspect. I don't know. Your thoughts? We are all individuals. Some people want to have that face-to-face, -face, especially some of the um, older people. I, I think if you look at the younger generation, especially in the US, and maybe in Europe as well, um, when I was younger, we always had uh, our PCP, our HCP, our you know, primary care physician. And um, you went to that primary care physician every six months. I, I think the attitude today is that don't, we don't need to fix what's not broken. I don't need to go and see a PCP. I only go and see a physician when I need to. Uh, and you've got these minute clinics, these places where you can go in and say, I don't feel well, I broke my finger, I'm, I'm feeling sore. Can you do something for me? That's the attitude of a lot of the younger people and some of the older people too. Whereas I like to have that face-to-face -face discussion. And therefore the ability to have technology augment, I'm gonna use that word again, augment our healthcare is important. Sometimes we're gonna to be too sick to go to the doctor. And we've seen that shift to nursing at home. And so I think we're gonna see those changes a lot more. Do I think that telehealth is going to be, and when I say telehealth, I'm talking about all avatars, bots, chats, anything that you can do when you're at home. Look at this, we're on a screen right now. I'm not physically in the same location to you, but we're having a wonderful conversation. You're knowing, you're finding things out about me. This is gonna play an incredibly big role in uh, healthcare as we go forward. Thank you, I couldn't agree more. Um, I'm aware of two or three companies that have already started implementing these kind of approaches, so very cool. Yeah, really gonna change again. So would you be willing to share a highlight and maybe a low light as well from your career? Highlight of my career? Um, I, I believe the highlight of the career has been more recent. I've become extremely excited by the challenges and changes that are going on in the healthcare space right now. And there's a lot of them. And I think it can be scary for many people. People are worried about AI, et cetera, right now, but I think it's actually great. But you can see where we are right now. We're, we're at that area where we need, I believe we need change in the industry. Low, low parts of my life. Uh, so. I'm a qualified accountant, Colin, and um, and no, that's not the low part of my life, but I had to make a decision. <laughs> Somebody people would say, he's an accountant? Wow. <laughs> no, no, but, but I had to make a decision. You know, if, if you practice in something and do it over and over and over again, they decide not to do it anymore. 
I, I, the reason I stopped becoming an accountant, or sorry, the reason I stopped being uh, chief financial officer is because I wanted to understand how businesses truly operated. And so I had to step into what I call the dark side. You know, I had to look at how the engine operates. And um, at, at the time, it was a whole new learning experience. But for anybody listening out there, change is good. It's okay to make changes. It doesn't matter what part of your life is in. As Colin mentioned earlier, um, I've just taken up studying AI in healthcare at Stanford. It's a change. Why? The industry is asking for it. And we need to be prepared for that. So making that change. Interesting insights. And sometimes they say you can't see the, uh, the hilltops if you haven't been in the valleys. So as a thought exercise, given $100 million to invest in industry or society, where and how would you put that to use? I would like to put that towards the, the educating of people and preparing them for the future. I don't think we do enough to help people um, understand how to grasp the future. Now, I, I, I've got, you know, children, uh, uh, you know, at that age where they're now stepping out of school and into the workforce. And um, I think for them, listening to them, it's a little scary. They're not, they're not sure about what's going on. And, and there's a challenge in every corner we look at. And, uh, you know, politically, environmentally, financially, it's a challenge. I think what we need to do is provide more training and more education to people. So if I had $100 million, I'll be honest with you, um, I, I, I would try and help people to understand and get a, a better grip of how they can make use of some of these great things that are coming. So with that and <clears throat> all the knowledge you've now gained over the years, if you could go back and speak with yourself at the age of, say, 25, what advice would you offer your younger self? This is exactly what I would say. Martin, you don't have to listen to me, but I'm going to suggest something. In a few years' time, Apple, Google, Amazon, Tesla, uh, all these organizations, get $1,000 and invest in each of them. Don't ask questions, just invest in them. Some are going to go up and down, some are going to go, but you are going to be rich by the time you get to the age I am right now if you just do that. I, but no, in seriousness, if I could speak to my 25-year-old, here's what I would say is this. Life is going to be fun. It's going to be up and it's going to be down. There's going to be challenges. Just don't give up hope. It's going to be okay. Everything is okay. Um, the, the world is going to change significantly from the way you see it today. Um, you know, buying your records and having the latest records is important to you right now. You will realize when you look back that none of that is important. What you wear is not important. But the relationships you have with people and the way you live your life is. So do your best to be on good terms with all people at all time. That's what I would share with you. Thank you. What a rich insight and ending to today's podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity to have this conversation, but to have you as a colleague and a friend. And with that, it's, uh, it's been an honor today. So thank you so much for your insights. Thank you, Colin. Appreciate it. Fractals is brought to you by Bracken, the professional services firm for life science and digital health organizations. Subscribe to Fractals via your preferred podcast platform 
visit us at thebrackengroup.com or reach out directly on LinkedIn. We'll be delighted to speak with you. I'm Colin Miller, wishing you sound business and good health. Thanks for listening.